Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hi, this week in medicine, we will be discussing. First we will be discussing articles in New England Journal of Medicine. Testosterone Treatment and Fractures in Men with Hypogonadism Background Testosterone treatment in men with hypogonadism improves bone density and quality, but trials with a sufficiently large sample and a sufficiently long duration to determine the effect of testosterone on the incidence of fractures are needed. Methods In a subtrial of a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial that assessed the cardiovascular safety of testosterone treatment in middle-aged and older men with hypogonadism, we examined the risk of clinical fracture and a time-to-event analysis. Eligible men were 45 to 80 years of age with pre-existing, or high risk of, cardiovascular disease, one or more symptoms of hypogonadism, and two morning testosterone concentrations of less than 300 nanograms per deciliter, 10.4 mol per liter, in fasting plasma samples obtained at least 48 hours apart. Participants were randomly assigned to apply a testosterone or placebo gel daily. At every visit, participants were asked that they had had a fracture since the previous visit. If they had, medical records were obtained and adjudicated. Results The full analysis population included 5,204 participants, 2,601 in the testosterone group, and 2,603 in the placebo group. After a median follow-up of 3.19 years, a clinical fracture had occurred in 91 participants, 3.50%, in the testosterone group and 64 participants, 2.46%, in the placebo group, hazard ratio, 1.43, 95% confidence interval, 1.04 to 1.97. The fracture incidence also appeared to be higher in the testosterone group for all other fracture endpoints. Conclusions Among middle-aged and older men with hypogonadism, testosterone treatment did not result in a lower incidence of clinical fracture than placebo. The fracture incidence was numerically higher among men who received testosterone than among those who received placebo. Long-term outcomes of resynchronization defibrillation for heart failure. Background. The resynchronization defibrillation for ambulatory heart failure trial, RAFT, showed a greater benefit with respect to mortality at five years among patients who received cardiac resynchronization therapy, CRT, than among those who received implantable cardioverter defibrillators, ICDs. However, the effect of CRT on long-term survival is not known. Methods We randomly assigned patients with New York Heart Association, NYHA, class 2 or 3 heart failure, a left ventricular ejection fraction of 30% or less, 
and an intrinsic QRS duration of 120 sec or more, or a pace QRS duration of 200 sec or more, to receive either an ICD alone or a CRT defibrillator, CRTD. We assessed long-term outcomes among patients at the eight highest enrolling participating sites. The primary outcome was death from any cause, the secondary outcome was a composite of death from any cause, heart transplantation, or implantation of a ventricular assist device. Results The trial enrolled 1798 patients, of whom 1050 were included in the long-term survival trial, the median duration of follow-up for the 1050 patients was 7.7 years, interquartile range, 3.9 to 12.8, and the median duration of follow-up for those who survived was 13.9 years, interquartile range, 12.8 to 15.7. Death occurred in 405 of 530 patients, 76.4%, assigned to the ICD group and in 370 of 520 patients, 71.2%, assigned to the CRTD group. The time until death appeared to be longer for those assigned to receive a CRTD than for those assigned to receive an ICD, acceleration factor 0.80, 95% confidence interval, 0.69 to 0.92, P equals 0.002. A secondary outcome event occurred in 412 patients, 77.7%, in the ICD group, and in 392, 75.4%, in the CRTD group. Conclusions Among patients with a reduced ejection fraction, a widened QRS complex, and NEHA class 2 or 3 heart failure, the survival benefit associated with receipt of a CRTD as compared with ICD appeared to be sustained during a median of nearly 14 years of follow-up. Azithromycin during routine well infant visits to prevent death. Background Mass distribution of azithromycin to children 1 to 59 months of age has been shown to reduce childhood all cause mortality in some sub Saharan African regions, with the largest reduction seen among infants younger than 12 months of age. Whether the administration of azithromycin at routine health care visits for infants would be effective in preventing death is unclear. Methods We conducted a randomized, Placebo-controlled trial of a single dose of azithromycin, 20 mg per kilogram of body weight, as compared with placebo, administered during infancy, 5 to 12 weeks of age. The primary endpoint was death before 6 months of age. Infants were recruited at routine vaccination or other well-child visits in clinics and through community outreach in three regions of Burkina Faso. Vital status was assessed at 6 months of age. Results of the 32,877 infants enrolled from September 2019 through October 2022, a total of 16,416 infants were randomly assigned to azithromycin and 16,461 to placebo. 82 infants in the azithromycin group and 75 infants in the placebo group died before 6 months of age. Hazard ratio, 1.09, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.80 to 1.49 p equals 0.58, the absolute difference in mortality was 0.04 percentage points, 95% c, minus 0.10 to 0.21. There was no evidence of an effect of azithromycin on mortality in any of the pre-specified subgroups, including subgroups defined according to age, sex, and baseline weight, 
and no evidence of a difference between the two trial groups and the incidence of adverse events. Conclusions In this trial conducted in Burkina Faso, we found that administration of azithromycin to infants through the existing health care system did not prevent death. Simnatralvir for adult patients with mild to moderate COVID-19. Background. Simnatralvir is an oral 3-chymotrypsin-like protease inhibitor that has been found to have in vitro activity against severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2, and potential efficacy in a phase 1b trial. Methods. In this phase 2 to 3, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial, we assigned patients who had mild to moderate coronavirus disease 2019, COVID-19, and onset of symptoms within the past three days in a one-to-one ratio to receive 750 mg of simnotralvir plus 100 mg of ritonavir or placebo twice daily for five days. The primary efficacy endpoint was the time to sustain resolution of symptoms, defined as the absence of 11 COVID-19-related symptoms for two consecutive days. Safety and changes in viral load were also assessed. Results A total of 1,208 patients were enrolled at 35 sites in China, 603 were assigned to receive simnotralvir and 605 to receive placebo. Among patients in the modified intention-to-treat population who received the first dose of trial drug or placebo within 72 hours after symptom onset, the time to sustained resolution of COVID-19 symptoms was significantly shorter in the simnotralvir group than in the placebo group, 180.1 hours, 95% confidence interval, c, 162.1 to 201.6, versus 216.0 hours, 95% c, 203.4 to 228.1, median difference, minus 35.8 hours, 95% c, minus 60.1 to minus 12.4, p equals 0.006 by pedo Prentice test. On day 5, the decrease in viral load from baseline was greater in the simnotralvir group than in the placebo group, mean difference, plus or minus a, minus 1.51 plus or minus 0.14 log 10 copies per milliliter, 95% c, minus 1.79 to minus 1.24. The incidence of adverse events during treatment was higher in the simnotralvir group than in the placebo group, 29.0% versus 21.6%. Most adverse events were mild or moderate. Conclusions Early administration of simnotralvir plus ritonavir shortened the time to the resolution of symptoms among adult patients with COVID-19, without evident safety concerns. Next article from Journal of American Medical Association. Risk of gastrointestinal adverse events associated with glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists for weight loss. Glucagon-like peptide 1, GLP-1, agonists are medications approved for treatment of diabetes that recently have also been used off-label for weight loss. One studies have found increased risks of gastrointestinal adverse events, biliary disease, 2 pancreatitis, 3 bowel obstruction, 4 in gastroparesis 5, in patients with diabetes.2 to 5 because such patients have higher baseline risk for gastrointestinal adverse events, risk in patients taking these drugs for other indications may differ. 
Randomized trials examining efficacy of GLP-1 agonists for weight loss were not designed to capture these events too due to small sample sizes and short follow-up. We examined gastrointestinal adverse events associated with GLP-1 agonists used for weight loss in a clinical setting. Methods We used a random sample of 16 million patients, 2006-2020, from the Pharmetrics Plus for Academics database, ICFIA, a large health claims database that captures 93% of all outpatient prescriptions and physician diagnoses in the U.S. through the International Classification of Diseases, 9th Revision, ICD-9, or ICD-10. Patients were observed from first prescription of a study drug to first mutually exclusive incidence, defined as first ICD-9 or ICD-10 code, of biliary disease, including cholecystitis, cholelithiasis, and cholecholithiasis, pancreatitis, including gallstone pancreatitis, bowel obstruction, or gastroparesis, defined as use of a code or a promotility agent. They were followed up to the end of the study period, June 2020, or censored during a switch. Results Our cohort included 4,144 liraglutide, 613 semaglutide, and 654 bupropion naltrexone users. Incidence rates for the four outcomes were elevated among GLP-1 agonists compared with bupropion naltrexone users, Table 1. For example, incidence of biliary disease, per 1,000 person years, was 11.7 for semaglutide, 18.6 for liraglutide, and 12.6 for bupropion naltrexone at 4.6, 7.9, and 1.0, respectively, for pancreatitis. Use of GLP-1 agonists compared with bupropion naltrexone was associated with increased risk of pancreatitis, adjusted HR, 9.09, 95% C, 1.25 to 66.00, bowel obstruction, HR, 4.22, 95% C, 1.02 to 17.40, and gastroparesis, HR, 3.67, 95% C, 1.15 to 11.90, but not biliary disease, HR, 1.50, 95% C, 0.89 to 2.53. Exclusion of hyperlipidemia from the analysis did not change the results, Table 2. Inclusion of GLP-1 agonists regardless of history of obesity reduced HRs and narrowed Cs but did not change the significance of the results, Table 2. E-value HRs did not suggest potential confounding by BMI. Discussion This study found that use of GLP-1 agonists for weight loss compared with use of bupropion naltrexone was associated with increased risk of pancreatitis, gastroparesis, and bowel obstruction but not biliary disease. Next article from Annals of Internal Medicine. Effectiveness of recombinant zoster vaccine against herpes zoster in a real-world setting. Background. A two-dose series of recombinant zoster vaccine, RZV, was 97% effective against herpes zoster, HC, in a pivotal clinical trial. Objective. To evaluate real-world effectiveness of RZV against HC. Design. Prospective cohort study. Setting. Four healthcare systems in the vaccine safety data link. Participants. Persons aged 50 years or older. Measurements. The outcome was incident HC defined by a diagnosis with an antiviral prescription. 
Cox regression was used to estimate the hazard of HC in vaccinated persons compared with unvaccinated persons, with adjustment for covariates. Vaccine effectiveness, VEI, was calculated as 1 minus the adjusted hazard ratio and was estimated by time since the last RZV dose and by corticosteroid use. Results The study included nearly 2.0 million persons who contributed 7.6 million person years of follow-up. After adjustment, VEI of one dose was 64% and VEI of two doses was 76%. After one dose only, VEI was 70% during the first year, 45% during the second year, 48% during the third year, and 52% after the third year. After two doses, VEI was 79% during the first year, 75% during the second year, and 73% during the third and fourth years. Vaccine effectiveness was 65% in persons who received corticosteroids before vaccination and 77% in those who did not. Limitation Herpes zoster could not be identified as accurately in these observational data as in the previous clinical trials. Conclusion Two doses of RZV were highly effective, although less effective than in the previous clinical trials. Two-dose effectiveness waned very little during the four years of follow-up. However, one-dose effectiveness waned substantially after one year, underscoring the importance of the second dose. Next article from Nature Medicine. Health effects associated with exposure to secondhand smoke, a burden of proof study. Despite a gradual decline in smoking rates over time, exposure to secondhand smoke, SHS, continues to cause harm to non-smokers, who are disproportionately children and women living in low- and middle-income countries. We comprehensively reviewed the literature published by July 2022 concerning the adverse impacts of SHS exposure on nine health outcomes. Following, we quantified each exposure response association accounting for various sources of uncertainty and evaluated the strength of the evidence supporting our analyses using the burden of proof risk function methodology. We found all nine health outcomes to be associated with SHS exposure. We conservatively estimated that SHS increases the risk of ischemic heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes and lung cancer by at least around 8%, 5%, 1% and 1%, respectively, with the evidence supporting these harmful associations rated as weak, two stars. The evidence supporting the harmful associations between SHS and otitis media, asthma, lower respiratory infections, breast cancer and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease was weaker, one star. Despite the weak underlying evidence for these associations, our results reinforce the harmful effects of SHS on health and the need to prioritize advancing efforts to reduce active and passive smoking through a combination of public health policies and education initiatives. Next article from British Medical Journal. Abstract. Objective to assess the extent and types of financial ties to industry of panel and task force members of the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, text revision, DSM-5TR, published in 2022. Design cross-sectional analysis. Setting open payments database, USA. Participants 92 physicians based in the U.S. who served as members of either a panel, N equals 86, or task force, N equals 6, 
on the DSM-5-TR with information recorded in the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Open Payments Database during 2016-19. This period was chosen to include the year that development of the DSM-5-TR began and the three years preceding, a time consistent with previous research on conflicts of interest and consistent with the American Psychiatric Association's disclosure requirements for the fifth revision, DSM-5, of the manual. Main outcome measures type and amount of compensation the panel and task force members of DSM-5-TR received during 2016-19. Results after duplicate names had been removed, 168 individuals were identified who served as either panel or task force members of the DSM-5-TR. 92 met the inclusion criteria of being a physician who is based in the U.S. and therefore could be included in open payments. Of these 92 individuals, 55, 60% received payments from industry. Collectively, these panel members received a total of £14.2 million, £11.2 million, £13 million. One-third, 33.3%, of the task force members had payments reported in open payments. Conclusions Conflicts of interest among panel members of DSM-5-TR were prevalent. Because of the enormous influence of diagnostic and treatment guidelines, the standards for participation on a guideline development panel should be high. A rebuttable presumption should exist for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders to prohibit conflicts of interest among its panel and task force members. When no independent individuals with the requisite expertise are available, individuals with associations to industry could consult to the panels, but they should not have decision-making authority on revisions or the inclusion of new disorders. Next article from Lancet. Familial hypercholesterolemia in children and adolescents from 48 countries, a cross-sectional study. Background. Approximately 450,000 children are born with familial hypercholesterolemia worldwide every year, yet only 2 middle.1% of adults with familial hypercholesterolemia were diagnosed before age 18 years via current diagnostic approaches, which are derived from observations in adults. We aim to characterize children and adolescents with heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, PFH, and understand current approaches to the identification and management of familial hypercholesterolemia to inform future public health strategies. Methods For this cross-sectional study, we assess children and adolescents younger than 18 years with a clinical or genetic diagnosis of EFH at the time of entry into the Familial Hypercholesterolemia Studies Collaboration, FHSC, Registry between October 1, 2015, and Jan 31, 2021. Findings Of 63093 individuals in the FHSC registry, 11848, 18 middle.8%, were children or adolescents younger than 18 years with EFH and were included in this study, 5756, 50 middle.2%, of 11,476 included individuals were female and 5,720, 49 middle.8% were male. Sex data were missing for 372, 3 middle.1% of 11,848 individuals. Median age at registry entry was 9 middle.6 years, IQR 5 middle.8 to 13 middle.2. 10,099, 89 middle.9% 
Of 11,235 included individuals had a final genetically confirmed diagnosis of familial hypercholesterolemia and 1,136, 10.1%, had a clinical diagnosis. Genetically confirmed diagnosis data or clinical diagnosis data were missing for 613, 5.2%, of 11,848 individuals. Genetic diagnosis was more common in children and adolescents from high-income countries, 9,427, 92 middle.4% of 10,202, then in children and adolescents from non-high-income countries, 199, 48 middle.0% of 415, 3,414, 31 middle.6% of 10,804 children or adolescents were index cases. Familial hypercholesterolemia-related physical signs, cardiovascular risk factors, and cardiovascular disease were uncommon, but were more common in non-high-income countries. 7,557, 72 middle.4% of 10,428 included children or adolescents were not taking lipid-lowering medication, LLM, and had a median LDLC of 5 middle.0 omal slash L, IQR 4 middle.05 to 6 middle.08. Compared with genetic diagnosis, the use of unadapted clinical criteria intended for use in adults and reliant on more extreme phenotypes could result in 50-75% to 75% of children and adolescents with familial hypercholesterolemia not being identified. Interpretation Clinical characteristics observed in adults with familial hypercholesterolemia are uncommon in children and adolescents with familial hypercholesterolemia, Hence detection in this age group relies on measurement of LDLC and genetic confirmation. Where genetic testing is unavailable, increased availability and use of LDLC measurements in the first few years of life could help reduce the current gap between prevalence and detection, enabling increased use of combination LLM to reach recommended LDLC targets early in life. Next article from Circulation. CHA MPCMD, a phenotype-blinded, randomized controlled, crossover trial. Background. Angina with non-obstructive coronary arteries is a common condition for which no effective treatment has been established. We hypothesize that the measurement of coronary flow reserve, CFR, allows identification of patients with angina with non-obstructive coronary arteries who would benefit from anti-ischemic therapy. Methods. Patients with angina with non-obstructive coronary arteries underwent blinded invasive CFR measurement and were randomly assigned to receive four weeks of amlodipine or renolazine. After a one-week washout, they crossed over to the other drug for four weeks. Final assessment was after the cessation of study medication for another four weeks. The primary outcome was change in treadmill exercise time, and the secondary outcome was change in Seattle Angina Questionnaire Summary Score in response to anti-ischemic therapy. Analysis was on a per-protocol basis according to the following classification, coronary microvascular disease, CMD group, if CFR less than 2.5 and reference group if CFR greater than or equal to 2.5. The study protocol was registered before the first patient was enrolled, International Standard Randomized Controlled Trial Number, ISRC 94728379. Results. 87 patients, 61 plus or minus 8 years of age, 62% women, underwent random assignment, 57 CMD group and 30 reference group. 
Baseline exercise time and Seattle Angina questionnaire summary scores were similar between groups. The CMD group had a greater increment, delta, in exercise time than the reference group in response to both amlodipine, difference in delta, 82s, 95% C, 37 to 126s, P less than 0.001, and renolazine, difference in delta, 68s, 95% C, 21 to 115s, P equals 0.005. The CMD group reported a greater increment, delta, in Seattle Angina questionnaire summary score than the reference group in response to renolazine, difference in delta, 7 points, 95% C, 0 to 15, P equals 0.048, but not to amlodipine, difference in delta, 2 points, 95% C, minus 5 to 8, P equals 0.549. Conclusions Among phenotypically similar patients with angina with non-obstructive coronary arteries, only those with an impaired CFR derive benefit from anti-ischemic therapy. These findings support measurement of CFR to diagnose and guide management of this otherwise heterogeneous patient group. American College of Cardiology Arrhythmic mitral valve prolapse in unexplained cardiac arrest Study questions What is the prevalence and what are the characteristics of mitral valve prolapse, MVP, in a large cohort of patients with unexplained cardiac arrest, UCA? Methods Patients were enrolled in CASPER, a multicenter registry of initially UCA. Echocardiograms were reviewed for MVP. Patients with MVP were divided into two groups, one, those with idiopathic ventricular fibrillation VF, who had arrhythmic MVP, and two, those with an alternative diagnosis, thought to have non-arrhythmic MVP. Results Among 571 patients with initially UCA, 34 patients, 6%, had MVP. The prevalence of definite MVP was significantly higher in patients with idiopathic VF than those with an alternative diagnosis, 6.6% versus 2.4%. The leaflet prolapse was significantly associated with arrhythmogenic MVP, 78% versus 12.5%, odds ratio, 25.2. The proportion of patients with arrhythmogenic MVP who received appropriate implantable cardioverter defibrillator, ICD, Therapies over a median follow-up of 42 months was 21%. Conclusions The authors conclude that MVP is associated with otherwise UCA, with a prevalence of 6.6%. The leaflet prolapse appears to be a feature of arrhythmogenic MVP. Perspective The study of the role that MVP may play in UCA has been hampered by the relatively high prevalence of MVP and a relatively small incidence of unexplained sudden cardiac death. Additionally, there have been varying definitions of MVP and much research came from single-center observational studies likely influenced by selection bias. Features that distinguish arrhythmogenic MVP from bystander MVP have not been well established. The current study's strength lies in the fact that the data come from a large multi-center registry and the causes of UCO were rigorously adjudicated. In this study, only beliefflet prolapse was statistically significantly associated with arrhythmogenic MVP. Patients with arrhythmogenic MVP also had a non-statistically significant tendency to more frequent mitral annular disjunction, premature ventricular contractions, and family history of sudden cardiac death. 
A great deal of work remains before we can begin to risk stratify patients with MVP who should be protected with an ICD. From Journals of the American College of Cardiology Health Status After Transcatheter Tricuspid Valve Repair in Patients with Severe Tricuspid Regurgitation Background In the Triluminate Pivotal, trial to evaluate cardiovascular outcomes in patients treated with the Tricuspid Valve Repair System Pivotal, Tricuspid Transcatheter Edge-to-Edge Repair, T-Tier, Reduced Tricuspid Regurgitation, TR, and improved health status compared with medical therapy alone with no benefit on heart failure hospitalizations or survival. Objectives The purpose of this study was to better understand the health status benefits of T-tier within the Triluminate Pivotal Trial. Methods Triluminate randomized patients with severe TR to T-tier, N equals 175, or medical therapy, N equals 175. Health status was assessed at baseline and at 1, 6, and 12 months with the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire, KCCQ, range 0 to 100, higher equals better, which was compared between treatment groups using mixed effects linear regression. Alive and well was defined as KCCQ overall summary score greater than or equal to 60 and no decline from baseline of greater than 10 points at one year. Results Compared with medical therapy, T-tier significantly improved health status at one month, mean between group difference in KCCQ overall summary score 9.4 points, 95% C, 5.3 to 13.4 points, with a small additional improvement at one year, mean between group difference 10.4 points, 95% C, 6.3 to 14.6 points. T-tier patients were more likely to be alive and well at one year, T-tier versus medical therapy, 74.8% versus 45.9%, P less than 0.001, with a number needed to treat of 3.5. Interaction analyzes demonstrated that the benefit of T-tier diminished as baseline KCCQ overall summary score increased, pint less than 0.001. Exploratory analyzes suggested that much of the health status benefit of T-tier could be explained by TR reduction and that improvement in health status after T-tier was strongly correlated with reduced one-year mortality and heart failure hospitalization. Conclusions T-tier with the TriClip system resulted in substantial and sustained health status improvement in patients with severe TR compared with medical therapy alone. Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Acute statin withdrawal does not interfere with the improvements of a session of exercise in postprandial metabolism. Background. The risk for atherogenic plaque formation is high after ingestion of meals in individuals with high blood lipid levels, e. dyslipidemia. Statins and exercise reduce the rise of blood triglyceride concentrations after a meal, but the effect of their combination is unclear. Methods. In a randomized crossover design, 11 individuals with dyslipidemia and metabolic syndrome treated with statins underwent a mixed meal, 970 plus or minus 111 kilocalories, 24% fat, and 34% carbohydrate tolerance test. Plasma lipid concentrations, fat oxidation, glucose, and glycerol kinetics were monitored immediately prior and during the meal test. 
Trials were conducted with participants under their habitual statin treatment and 96 hours after blinded statin withdrawal. Trials were duplicated after a prolonged bout of low-intensity exercise, 75 minutes at 53 plus or minus 4% maximal oxygen consumption, to study the interactions between exercise and statins. Results Statins reduced postprandial plasma triglycerides from 3.03 plus or minus 0.85 to 2.52 plus or minus 0.86 millimoles middle.l minus 1, 17%, p equals 0.015, and plasma glycerol concentrations, e, surrogate of whole body lipolysis, without reducing plasma free fatty acid concentration or fat oxidation. Prior exercise increased postprandial plasma glycerol levels. P equals 0.029, and fat oxidation rates, P equals 0.024. Exercise decreased postprandial plasma insulin levels, 241 plus or minus 116 versus 301 plus or minus 172 romol middle dot L minus 1, P equals 0.026, but not enough to increase insulin sensitivity, P equals 0.614. Neither statins nor exercise affected plasma glucose appearance rates from exogenous or endogenous sources. Conclusions In dyslipidemic individuals, statins reduce blood triglyceride concentrations after a meal, but without limiting fat oxidation. Statins do not interfere with exercise lowering the postprandial insulin that likely promotes fat oxidation. Last, statins do not restrict the rates of plasma incorporation or oxidation of the ingested glucose. Association between free fatty acids and cardiometabolic risk in coronary artery disease, results from the PROMISE study. Context The association between free fatty acids, FFAs, and unfavorable clinical outcomes has been reported in the general population. However, evidence in the secondary prevention population is relatively scarce. Objective we aim to examine the relationship between FFA and cardiovascular risk in patients with coronary artery disease, CAD. Methods This study was based on a multi-center cohort of patients with CAD enrolled from January 2015 to May 2019. The primary outcome was all-cause death. Secondary outcomes included cardiac death and major adverse cardiovascular events, MACE, a composite of death, myocardial infarction, and unplanned revascularization. Results During a follow-up of two years, there were 468, 3.0%, all-cause deaths, 335, 2.1%, cardiac deaths, and 1,279, 8.1%, MACE. Elevated FFA levels were independently associated with increased risks of all-cause death, cardiac death, and MACE, all P less than 0.05. Moreover, when FFA were combined with an original model derived from the Cox regression, there were significant improvements in discrimination and reclassification for prediction of all-cause death, net reclassification improvement, NRI, 0.245, P less than 0.001, integrated discrimination improvement, ED, 0.004, P equals 0.004, cardiac death, NRI, 0.269, P less than 0.001, ED 0.003, P equals 0.006, and MACE, NRI 0.268, P less than 0.001, ED 
ED 0.004, P less than 0.001. Notably, when stratified by age, we found that the association between FFA with MACE risk appeared to be stronger in patients aged greater than or equal to 60 years compared with those aged less than 60 years. Conclusion In patients with CAD, FFAs are associated with all-cause death, cardiac death, and MACE. Combined evaluation of FFAs with other traditional risk factors could help identify high-risk individuals who may require closer monitoring and aggressive treatment. Next article from Journal of Hepatology. Predicting survival in patients with non-high-risk acute for sealed bleeding receiving beta blockers plus ligation to prevent re-bleeding. Background and aims. Preemptive transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt, TIPS, is the treatment of choice for high-risk acute for sealed bleeding. Nevertheless, some non-high-risk patients have poor outcomes despite the combination of non-selective beta blockers and endoscopic varicele ligation for secondary prophylaxis. We investigated prognostic factors for re-bleeding and mortality in non-high-risk AVB to identify subgroups who may benefit from more potent treatments, i.e., tips, to prevent further decompensation and mortality. Methods a total of 2,225 adults with cirrhosis and variceal bleeding were prospectively recruited at 34 centers between 2011 to 2015. For the purpose of this study, case definitions and information on prognostic indicators at index AVB and on day 5 were further refined in low-risk patients, of whom 581, without failure to control bleeding or contraindications to TIPS, who were managed by non-selective beta blockers endoscopic variceal ligation, were finally included. Patients were followed for one year. Results. Overall, 90 patients, 15%, re-bled and 70, 12% patients died during follow-up. Using clinical routine data, no meaningful predictors of re-bleeding were identified. However, re-bleeding, included as a time-dependent co-variable, increased mortality, even after accounting for differences in patient characteristics, adjusted cause-specific hazard ratio, 2.57, 95% C1.43 to 4.62, P equals 0.002. A nomogram including CTP, creatinine, and sodium measured at baseline accurately, concordance, 0.752, stratified the risk of death. Conclusion The majority of non-high-risk patients with AVB have an excellent prognosis, if treated according to current recommendations. However, about one-fifth of patients, i.e. those with CTP greater than or equal to 8 and or high creatinine levels or hyponatremia, have a considerable risk of death within one year of the index bleed. Future clinical trials should investigate whether elective TIPS placement reduces mortality in these patients. Impact and Implications Preemptive transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt placement improves outcomes in high-risk acute varicele bleeding. Nevertheless, some non-high-risk patients have poor outcomes despite the combination of non-selective beta blockers and endoscopic variceal ligation. This is the first large-scale study investigating prognostic factors for re-bleeding and mortality in non-high-risk acute variceal bleeding. While no clinically meaningful predictors were identified for re-bleeding, we developed a nomogram integrating baseline child Turcotte-Q score, creatinine, and sodium to stratify mortality risk.
Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology. Regional differences in clinical presentation and prognosis of patients with post-sustained virologic response hepatocellular carcinoma. Background and aims. Widespread use of direct-acting antivirals for hepatitis C virus infection has been paralleled with increased numbers of patients with hepatocellular carcinoma, HCC, after achieving sustained virologic response, post-SVR-HCC, worldwide. Few data compare regional differences in the presentation and prognosis of patients with post-SVR-HCC. Methods We identified patients with advanced fibrosis, F3-F4, who developed incident post-SVR-HCC between March 2015 and October 2021 from 30 sites in Europe, North America, South America, the Middle East, South Asia, East Asia, and Southeast Asia. We compared patient demographics, liver dysfunction, and tumor burden by region. We compared overall survival by region using Kaplan-Meier analysis and identified factors associated with survival using multivariable Cox regression analysis. Results Among 8,796 patients with advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis who achieved SVR, 583, 6.6%, developed incident HCC. There was marked regional variation in the proportion of patients detected by surveillance, range, 59.5% to 100%, median maximum tumor diameter range, 1.8 to 5.0 cm, and the proportion with multinodular HCC, range, 15.4% to 60.8%. The prognosis of patients highly varied by region, hazard ratio range, 1.82 to 9.92, with the highest survival rates in East Asia, North America, and South America, and the lowest survival rates in the Middle East and South Asia. After adjusting for geographic region, HCC surveillance was associated with early-stage detection, Barcelona Clinic Liver Cancer Stage 0-A, 71.0% versus 21.3%, P less than 0.0001, and lower mortality rates, adjusted hazard ratio, 0.29. 95% C, 0.18 to 0.46. Conclusions Clinical characteristics, including early-stage detection, and prognosis of post-SVR-HCC differed significantly across geographic regions. Surveillance utilization appears to be a high-yield intervention target to improve prognosis among patients with post-SVR-HCC globally. Evolution of Symptoms After Ustekinumab Induction Therapy in Patients with Crohn's Disease Background and Aims Ustekinumab is an effective treatment of Crohn's disease, CD. Of interest to patients is knowing how soon symptoms may improve. We analyzed ustekinumab response dynamics from the ustekinumab CD trials. Methods Patients with CD received intravenous induction with ustekinumab 6 mg kg N equals 458, or placebo, N equals 457. Week 8 ustekinumab responders received subcutaneous ustekinumab 90 mg as the first maintenance dose or as an extended induction dose for non-responders. Patient reported symptom changes, stool frequency, abdominal pain, general well-being, within the first 14 days and clinical outcomes through week 44 were evaluated using the CD activity index. Results. After ustekinumab infusion, 
stool frequency improvement was significantly, p less than 0.05, greater than placebo on day 1 and for all patient reported symptoms by day 10. In patients with no history of biologic failure or intolerance, cumulative clinical remission rates increased from 23.0% at week 3 to 55.5% at week 16 after the subcutaneous dose at week 8. Corresponding cumulative rates for patients with a history of biologic failure or intolerance increased from 12.9% to 24.1%. Neither change from baseline and CD activity index score nor week 8 ustekinumab pharmacokinetics were associated with week 16 response. Among all patients who received subcutaneous ustekinumab 90 mg Q8W, up to 66.7% were in clinical response at week 44. Conclusions Ustekinumab induction provided symptom relief by day 1 post-infusion. Following ustekinumab infusion and a subcutaneous 90 mg injection, clinical outcomes continue to increase through week 16 and up to week 44. Regardless of week 8 clinical status or ustekinumab pharmacokinetics, patients should receive additional treatment week 8. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology. A Delphi method for development of a Barrett's esophagus question prompt list as a communication tool for optimal patient-physician communication. Background Methods. The question prompt list content was derived through a modified Delphi process consisting of three rounds. In round one, experts provided five answers to the prompts what general questions should patients ask when given a new diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus and what questions do I not hear patients asking, but given my expertise, I believe they should be asking? Questions were reviewed and categorized into themes. In round two, experts rated questions on a five-point Likert scale. In round three, experts re-rated questions modified or reduced after the previous rounds. Only questions rated as essential or important were included in Barrett's esophagus question prompt list, BQPL. To improve usability, questions were reduced to minimize redundancy and simplify to use language at an 8th grade level, figure 1. Results 21 esophageal medical and surgical experts participated in both rounds, 91% males, median age 52 years. The expert panel comprised of 33% esophagologists, 24% foregut surgeons, and 24% advanced endoscopists, with a median of 15 years in clinical practice. Most, 81%, worked in an academic tertiary referral hospital. In this three-round Delphi technique, 220 questions were proposed in round 1, 122, 55.5%, were accepted into the BQPL and reduced down to 76 questions, round 2, and 67 questions, round 3. These 67 questions reached the flesh reading ease of 68.8, interpreted as easily understood by 13 to 15 years olds. Conclusions With multidisciplinary input, we have developed a physician-derived BQPL to optimize patient-physician communication. Future directions will seek patient feedback to distill the questions further to a smaller number and then assess their usability. Next article from Journal of Infectious Diseases. Two-year duration of immunity of inactivated poliovirus vaccine, a follow-up study in Pakistan in 2020. 
This was a follow-up study conducted in 2020 assessing changes in levels of type 2 poliovirus neutralizing antibodies two years post-immunization in children who received an activated poliovirus vaccine, IPV, in Karachi, Pakistan. Unexpectedly, the findings revealed an increase in seroprevalence of type 2 antibodies from 73.1% to 81.6% one year and two years after IPV, respectively. The increase in type 2 immunity could result from the intensive transmission of circulating vaccine-derived poliovirus type 2, CBDPV2, in Karachi during the second year of IPV administration. This study suggests that the CBDPV2 outbreak detected in Pakistan infected large proportions of children in Karachi. Next article from CHEST. Epidemiology and Clinical Patterns of Lung Abscesses in ICU A French Multicenter Retrospective Study Background Data are scarce regarding epidemiology and management of critically ill patients with lung abscesses. Research question. What are the clinical and microbiological characteristics of critically ill patients with lung abscesses, how are they managed in the ICU, and what are the risk factors of an ICU mortality? Study design and methods. This was a retrospective observational multicenter study, based on international classification of diseases, 10th revision, codes, between 2015 and 2022 in France. In ICU mortality associated factors were determined by multivariate logistic regression. Results. We analyzed 171 ICU patients with pulmonary abscesses. 78% were male, with a mean age of 56.5 plus or minus 16.4 years, 20.4% misused alcohol, 25.2% had a chronic lung disease, 14% COPD, and 20.5% had a history of cancer. Overall, 40.9% were immunocompromised and 38% qualified for nosocomial infection. Presenting symptoms included fatigue or weight loss in 62%, fever, 50.3%, and dyspnea, 47.4%. Hemoptysis was reported in 21.7%. Apollomicrobial infection was present in 35.6%. The most frequent pathogens were Enterobacteriaceae in 31%, Staphylococcus aureus in 22%, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa in 19.3%. Fungal infections were found in 10.5%. Several clusters of clinical radiologic patterns were associated with specific microbiological documentation and could guide empiric antibiotic regimen. Percutaneous abscess drainage was performed in 11.7%, surgery was performed in 12.7%, and 12% required bronchial artery embolization for hemoptysis. In ICU mortality was 21.5% and age or 1.05, 1.02 to 1.91, P equals 0.007, renal replacement therapy during a ICU stay, or, 3.56, 1.24 to 10.57, P equals 0.019, and fungal infection, or, 9.12, 2.69 to 34.5, P equals 0.0006, were independent predictors of mortality after multivariate logistic regression, and drainage or surgery were not. Interpretation Pulmonary abscesses in the ICU are a rare but severe disease often resulting from a polymicrobial infection, with a high proportion of Enterobacteriaceae, S. aureus, and P. aeruginosa. 
percutaneous drainage, surgery, or arterial embolization was required in more than one-third of cases. Further prospective studies focusing on first-line antimicrobial therapy and source control procedure are warranted to improve and standardize patient management. Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. The impact of donor smoking on primary graft dysfunction and mortality after lung transplantation. Rationale, primary graft dysfunction, PGD, is the leading cause of early morbidity and mortality after lung transplantation. Prior studies implicated proxy defined donor smoking as a risk factor for PGD and mortality. Objectives, we aim to more accurately assess the impact of donor smoke exposure on PGD and mortality using quantitative smoke exposure biomarkers. Methods, we performed a multi-center prospective cohort study of lung transplant recipients enrolled in the Lung Transplant Outcomes Group cohort between 2012 and 2018. PGD was defined as grade 3 at 48 or 72 hours after lung reperfusion. Donor smoking was defined using accepted thresholds of urinary biomarkers of nicotine exposure, codonine, and tobacco-specific nitrosamine, 4-methylnitrosamino-1,3-pyridyl-1-butanol, NIL, in addition to clinical history. The Donor Smoking PGD Association was assessed using logistic regression, and survival analysis was performed using inverse probability of exposure weighting according to smoking category. Measurements and main results Active donor smoking prevalence varied by definition, with 34 to 43% based on urinary codonine, 28% by urinary null, and 37% by clinical documentation. The standardized risk of PGD associated with active donor smoking was higher across all definitions, with an absolute risk increase of 11.5%, 95% confidence interval, c, 3.8% to 19.2%, by urinary codonine. 5.7%, 95% C, minus 3.4% to 14.9%, by urinary null, and 6.5%, 95% C, minus 2.8% to 15.8%, defined clinically. Donor smoking was not associated with differential post-lung transplant survival using any definition. Conclusions, donor smoking associates with a modest increase in PGD risk but not with increased recipient mortality. Use of lungs from smokers is likely safe and may increase lung donor availability. Next article is from Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology. That associations of biomarkers of tubular injury and inflammation with biopsy features in type 1 diabetes. Background whether biomarkers of tubular injury and inflammation indicate subclinical structural kidney pathology early in type 1 diabetes remains unknown. Methods We investigated associations of biomarkers of tubular injury and inflammation with kidney structural features in 244 adults with type 1 diabetes from the renin-angiotensin system study, a randomized, placebo-controlled trial testing effects of enalapril or losartanone changes in glomerular, tubulointerstitial, and vascular parameters from baseline to five-year kidney biopsies. Biosamples at biopsy were assessed for kidney injury molecule 1, KIM-1, soluble TNF receptor 1, SDNFR1, arginine to citrulline ratio in plasma, 
and uromodulin and epidermal growth factor, EGF, in urine. We examine cross-sectional correlations between biomarkers and biopsy features and baseline biomarker associations with five-year changes in biopsy features. Results Participants' mean age was 30 years, SD10, and diabetes duration 11 years, SD5, 53% were women. The mean GFR measured by iohexol disappearance was 128 milliliters per minute per 1.73 meters 2, SD19, and median urinary albumin excretion was 5 mg per minute, interquartile range, 3 to 8. KIM1 was associated with most biopsy features, higher mesangial fractional volume, half a percent, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.1 to 0.9, greater per STKIM1, glomerular basement membrane, GBM, width, 14.2 nanometers, 95% C, 6.5 to 22.0, thicker, cortical interstitial fractional volume, 1.1%, 95% C, 0.6 to 1.6, greater, fractional volume of cortical atrophic tubules, 0.6%, 95% C, 0.2 to 0.9, greater, and arteriolar hyalinosis index, 0.03, 95% C, 0.1 to 0.05, higher. STNFR1 was associated with higher mesangial fractional volume, 0.9%, 95% C, 0.5 to 1.3, greater, and GBM width, 12.5 nanometers, 95% C, 4.5 to 20.5, thicker and lower GBM surface density, 0.003 mu m2, mu m3, 95% C, 0.005 to 0.001 lesser. EGF and arginine to citrulline ratio correlated with severity of glomerular and tubulointerstitial features. Baseline STNFR1, uromodulin, and EGF concentrations were associated with 5-year glomerular and tubulointerstitial feature progression. Conclusions Biomarkers of tubular injury and inflammation were associated with kidney structural parameters in early type 1 diabetes and may be indicators of kidney disease risk. Next article is from Kidney International Reports. CKD is the major cause of death in Adonim, a population representative study using smart verbal autopsy. Introduction Adonim is an agricultural area with a high burden of chronic kidney disease of unknown etiology, too. Despite reports of many deaths due to CKD in the lay press, the exact contribution of CKD to deaths remains uncertain because most deaths occur outside medical care. Methods we use Smart VA Automated Verbal Autopsy Tool to ascertain the cause-specific mortality fractions among a 2,419 subject strong general population cohort of adult subjects in Udonim between 2018 and 2022. Verbal autopsy interviews were conducted twice with the family members of the deceased. Results A total of 133 deaths were recorded, giving a crude death rate of 5.5%, 10 times higher than that recorded in national surveys. CKD was responsible for 45% of all deaths, followed by ischemic heart disease, 15%, and respiratory disease, 6%. Conclusion This study confirms CKD is the leading cause of mortality in this high CKD burden area and provides crucial data for public health decision-making and resource allocation.
Optimization of rituximab therapy in adult patients with PLA2R1-associated membranous nephropathy with artificial intelligence. Introduction Rituximab is a first-line treatment for membranous nephropathy. Nephrotic syndrome limits rituximab exposure due to urinary drug loss. Rituximab underdosing, serum level less than 2G-ML at month 3, is a risk factor for treatment failure. We developed a machine learning algorithm to predict the risk of underdosing based on patients' characteristics at rituximab infusion. We investigated the relationship between the predicted risk of underdosing and the cumulative dose of rituximab required to achieve remission. Methods Rituximab concentrations were measured at month 3 and 92 SARA from adult patients with primary membranous nephropathy, split into a training, 75%, and a testing set, 25%. A forward-backward machine learning procedure determined the best combination of variables to predict rituximab underdosing in the training data set, which was tested in the test set. The performances were evaluated for accuracy, sensitivity, and specificity in tenfold cross-validation training and test sets. Results The best variables combination to predict rituximab underdosing included age, gender, body surface area, BSA, antiphospholipase A2 receptor type 1, anti-PLA2R1, antibody titer on day 0, serum albumin on day 0 and day 15, and serum creatinine on day 0 and day 15. The accuracy, sensitivity, and specificity were respectively 79.4%, 78.7%, and 81.0%, training data set, and 79.2%, 84.6%, and 72.7%, testing data set. In both sets, the algorithm performed significantly better than chance, p less than 0.05. Patients with an initial high probability of underdosing experienced a longer time to remission with higher rituximab cumulative doses required to achieve remission. Conclusion This algorithm could allow for early intensification of rituximab regimen in patients at high estimated risk of underdosing to increase the likelihood of remission. Exercise-induced fluid retention, cardiac volume overload, and peripheral edema in ultra-distance cyclists. Introduction Ultracyclists expose themselves to extreme physical challenges. This study aimed to elucidate the effects of ultracycling on electrolyte and fluid balance and investigate the potential occurrence of peripheral edema. Methods A total of four clinical visits were performed before, during, and after a six-day bicycle ride in 13 ultracyclists, five female, eight male, including serial laboratory analyses of blood and urine, bioelectrical impedance, and echocardiography. Throughout the ride, participants continuously tracked fluid intake, measured extremity circumferences daily, and self-tested urinary electrolytes using a point-of-care testing device. Portrait photos were judged by 20 physicians for occurrence of facial and eyelid edema. Results Participants covered a mean distance of 1,205 kilometers and 19,417 vertical meters. From baseline to day 6, body weight remained stable, P equals 0.479. However, body composition changed with increasing total body water, TBW, plus 1.98 liters plus or minus 1.37, P equals 0.003, and plasma volume, plus 18.86% plus or minus 10.7, P less than 0.001. 
A significant increase in N-terminal pro-brain natriuretic peptide, NT-prob, plus 297.99 nanograms slash L plus or minus 190.42, P less than 0.001, until day 6 indicates concomitant cardiac volume overload. Swelling of face and eyelids peaked on day 5, both P less than or equal to 0.033. On recovery, changes partly resolved. Although urinary sodium concentration showed a nadir on day 4, minus 32.18 millimoles slash L plus or minus 23.88, P equals 0.022, plasma osmolality, plus 5.69 mosmoles slash Kg plus or minus 5.88, P equals 0.004, and copeptin, plus 38.28 Pg slash ML plus or minus 18.90, P less than 0.001 increased steadily until day 6. Conclusion Ultracycling over multiple days induces extracellular volume expansion, peripheral edema, and cardiac volume overload. Renal sodium and water retention is likely contributing to this condition. Next article from Neurology, Initiation of Anti-Seizure Medications by U.S. Board-Certified Neurologists After a First Unprovoked Seizure Based on EEG Findings Background and Objectives To investigate neurologists' practice variability in anti-seizure medication, ASM, initiation after a first unprovoked seizure based on reported EEG interpretations. Methods we developed a 15-question multiple-choice survey incorporating a standardized clinical case scenario of a patient with a first unprovoked seizure for whom different EEG reports were provided. The survey was distributed among board-certified neurologists practicing in the United States. Associations between categorical variables were evaluated using the Fisher exact test. Multivariate analysis was performed using logistic regression. Results a total of 106 neurologists responded to the survey. Most responders, 75% to 95%, would start ASM for definite epileptiform features on EEG, with similar rates between subgroups differing in years of practice, presence of subspecialty EEG training, and self-reported confidence in EEG interpretation. There was greater variability in practice for nonspecific EEG abnormalities, with sharply contoured activity, sharp transients, and focal delta slowing associated with the highest variability and uncertainty. Neurologists with greater than 5 years of practice experience, 21% versus 44%, or 0.35, 95% see 0.13 to 0.89, P equals 0.021, subspecialty E training, 15% versus 50%, or equals 0.17, 95% see 0.06 to 0.48, P less than 0.001, and greater confidence in EEG interpretation, 21% versus 52%, or 0.24, 95% see 0.09 to 0.62, P equals 0.001, were less likely to start ASM for greater than or equal to two nonspecific EEG abnormalities and reported greater uncertainty. In multivariate analysis, seniority, P equals 0.039, and subspecialty training, P equals 0.032, were associated with decreased ASM initiation for nonspecific EEG features. Discussion 
There was substantial variability in ASM initiation practices between board-certified neurologists after a first unprovoked seizure with nonspecific EEG abnormalities. These findings clarify specific areas where EEG reporting may be optimized and reinforces the importance of implementing evidence-based practice guidelines. Next article from Journal of Clinical Oncology. Efficacy and safety of trastuzumab deruxtecan in patients with ER2 expressing solid tumors, primary results from the Destiny Pan Tumor O2 Phase 2 trial. Purpose. Trastuzumab deruxtecan, TDD, is a human epidermal growth factor 2, HER2 directed antibody drug conjugate approved in HER2 expressing breast and gastric cancers and HER2 mutant non-small cell lung cancer. Treatments are limited for other HER2-expressing solid tumors. Methods This open-label Phase 2 study evaluated TDD, 5.4 mg kg once every 3 weeks, for HER2-expressing, immunohistochemistry, IHC, 3 plus 2 plus by local or central testing, locally advanced or metastatic disease after greater than or equal to 1 systemic treatment or without alternative treatments. The primary endpoint was investigator assessed confirmed objective response rate, ORR. Secondary endpoints included safety, duration of response, progression-free survival, PFS and overall survival, OS. Results At primary analysis, 267 patients received treatment across seven tumor cohorts, endometrial, cervical, ovarian, bladder, biliary tract, pancreatic and other. The median follow-up was 12.75 months. In all patients, the ORR was 37.1% and equals 99.95% C, 31.3-43.2, with responses in all cohorts. The median door was 11.3 months, 95% C, 9.6-17.8, the median PFS was 6.9 months, 95% C, 5.6-8.0 and the median OS was 13.4 months, 95% C, 11.9 to 15.5. In patients with central HER2 IHC3 plus expression, N equals 75, the ORR was 61.3%, 95% C, 49.4 to 72.4, the median door was 22.1 months, 95% C, 9.6 to not reached, the median PFS was 11.9 months, 95% C, 8.2 to 13.0, and the median OS was 21.1 months, 95% C, 15.3 to 29.6. Grade greater than or equal to 3 drug-related adverse events were observed in 40.8% of patients, 10.5% experienced adjudicated drug-related interstitial lung disease, ILD, with 3 deaths. Conclusion Our study demonstrates durable clinical benefit, meaningful survival outcomes, and safety consistent with the known profile, including ILD in pretreated patients with or two expressing tumors receiving TDD. Greatest benefit was observed for the IHC3 plus population. These data support the potential role of TDD as a tumor agnostic therapy for patients with or two expressing solid tumors. Next article from Journal of Clinical Rheumatology. 
racial disparities in diagnosis and treatment of patients with dermatomyositis of different skin tones. Background Delays in the diagnosis and treatment of dermatological conditions in minorities are a well-documented health disparity. We aim to determine if there was a delay in detection and treatment initiation for dermatomyositis, DM, and amyopathic dermatomyositis, ADM, in patients of different skin tones. Methods Patients from Montefiore Medical Center who met the criteria for DM and ADM were included in this cohort study. Records were reviewed for date of first documented rash, creatine kinase levels, muscle weakness complaints, and date of first steroid or disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug initiation. The median number of days between rash documentation and therapy initiation was compared for patients of different races, including non-Hispanic white, non-Hispanic black, Hispanic, and other, Asian and unknown. Data were compared in white versus non-white skin. Results 63DM and 9ADM patients met the inclusion criteria. There was a shorter time to treatment initiation in white versus non-white patients, with a median number of 8 days compared with 21 days, respectively, p equals 0.05. Kaplan-Meier curve showed prolonged time to diagnosis and treatment in all other races when compared with white patients, p equals 0.03. Discussion It took clinicians longer to diagnose and treat DM and ADM in patients of color. The trends observed emphasize the importance of increasing dermatology education of non-white skin to improve detection and treatment of DM and ADM and minimize health disparities. Next article from Arthritis and Rheumatology A randomized controlled neuroimaging trial of cognitive behavioral therapy for fibromyalgia pain Objective. Fibromyalgia, FM, is characterized by pervasive pain-related symptomatology and high levels of negative effect. Mind-body treatments such as cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, appear to foster improvement in FM via reductions in pain-related catastrophizing, a set of negative, pain-amplifying cognitive and emotional processes. However, the neural underpinnings of CBT's catastrophizing-reducing effects remain uncertain. This randomized controlled mechanistic trial was designed to assess CBT's effects on pain catastrophizing and its underlying brain circuitry. Methods Of 114 enrolled participants, 98 underwent a baseline neuroimaging assessment and were randomized to 8 weeks of individual CBT or a matched FM education control, EDU, condition. Results Compared with EDU, CBT produced larger decreases in pain catastrophizing post-treatment p less than 0.05, and larger reductions in pain interference and symptom impact. Decreases in pain catastrophizing played a significant role in mediating those functional improvements in the CBT group. At baseline, brain functional connectivity between the ventral posterior cingulate cortex, VPCC, a key node of the default mode network, DMN, and somatomotor and salience network regions was increased during catastrophizing thoughts. Following CBT, VPCC connectivity to somatomotor and salience network areas was reduced. Conclusion Our results suggest clinically important and CBT-specific associations between somatosensory-slash-motor and salience-processing brain regions and the DMN in chronic pain. These patterns of connectivity may contribute to individual differences and treatment-related changes in somatic self-awareness. 
CBT appears to provide clinical benefits at least partially by reducing pain-related catastrophizing and producing adaptive alterations in DMN functional connectivity. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great weekend.